Mike Tyson. Yeah. Tyson. Yeah. I'm Mike Tyson. Yeah. Tyson. We probably break. Uh, yeah, it's ludicrous. Hello, this is another episode of Hot Boxing. This is Mike Tyson, and I have Andrew Huberman today. And, okay. hey, man, listen, listen, Andrew. I Listen, <clears throat> normally I'm just a joker, but I'm being really serious right now. Quantum Universe, yeah. that makes sense to you? Uh, quantum Universe, I mean, it could mean a lot of different things. Explain yeah. it to me. Well, I'm a neuroscientist, so I work on the brain. Quantum Universe is outside my my wheelhouse. So. How are you aware of it? Well, I can tell you a little bit about what I know about quantum computing. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, Explain it to me first, then tell me. Yeah. About it. Yeah. So this is not my immediate area of expertise, but right now there is a race worldwide to see which countries can develop quantum internet first. Oh, and here's what happens. If you send a text message or you put something in an email or you send something out, across the internet to somebody, it can be detected, right? Other people can read it and know about it. The whole idea of quantum computing is that the communication between two people would be in a unique language for essentially every moment, a different language, so that you can understand on your end what's happening. I can understand on my end what's happening. We can send each other messages that we understand. But if anyone were to try and look in on that, it would change the conversation and they wouldn't be able to detect it. So the simple, and that's important to us. That's very important for all sorts of uh, political reasons, military reasons, for guys like reasons. us, guys like us. Yeah. People who want to keep their communications <laughs> private. You know, one friend of mine who works in the securities world told they already me, know everything about you. Well, now you want to be private. They know everything <laughs> about you. Uh, well, what he said is exactly in line with what you're saying, which is that unless something is kept in your head, chances are it, it's accessible, right? You know, you say something nowadays and it's pretty much recorded, right? Um, pretty much anywhere, not everywhere, but qu so quantum computing is a big effort of many different countries to try and develop ways that people can communicate with one another in a completely encrypted way so that if anyone were to look in on that conversation, it would essentially destroy the conversation. Now, I don't know about quantum universe, but that's what little I know about quantum computing. So uh, Hillary Clinton should have had that during her email I think everyone is hoping to have some way to communicate privately uh, for whatever reason I mean is, is there real privacy out there Mike I mean is there really like real privacy everybody knows everybody's more transparent than they believe they are. We everybody know who everybody is mm. pretty much but you can't hide your info like you know once you type whatever in that format it's out of here because there's, there's no such thing as it never gets deleted you know I think if there ought to be um, place, there are places where there are records of essentially every yeah, every web search you've done. I think there's some search engines that are not doing that. I'm not sure if that's DuckDuckGo. If you've heard mm -hmm. of that, um, but yeah, I mean your use patterns on the internet over the last 10, 15 years, where you've spent your credit cards, what you buy, who you spent time with. Our phones are now in proximity. They know that we spent time together here. Now, when we say they, I mean someone would have to have a real interest in going and looking at that, right? I don't think somebody's sitting there looking at everything. But, yeah, I think that you can backtrack most anything. There's a digital um, trail uh, uh, for most all of us. Why do humans give a fuck? We're going to die anyway. Why do we give a fuck? Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> gosh, uh, the big questions first. Um, <laughs> you know, this gets us into the brain and neuroscience, actually. You know, one of the most amazing things about the... What we care about dying, what we, what we fear about dying, what's, the, what's dying all about? Well, I think there are different categories of people on this one, but I think some people fear dying a lot. Some people just don't think about it. I'll be honest, I don't think about it. Mm. I, I don't think about dying. Um, the brain is amazing because it can change its perception of time really easily. Like if there's a stressful event, let's say during a fight, or an argument of any kind, your perception of time starts getting really fine sliced. You're paying attention moment to moment to moment to moment. Then when you're relaxed or you're dreaming or you're not worried about things, 
you tend to look at time as kind of expansive, past, present, future, dreamlike states. We talk about psychedelics too. It's a very interesting area of, of science right now. Um, so the brain doesn't have like one mode. It's not like a video camera that always shoots in slow motion or always shoots high speed or shoots at like standard, like the way we're communicating now. The frame rate changes. So um, actually, this is, I have a question for you. Um, you know, when you were fighting, did you ever feel like in those moments that you could slice up time more finely? Like you could, did things ever seem like they were in slow motion? Yeah, I was, um, I was completely relaxed when I was fighting. Mm-hmm. I was intense. I was just totally mm-hmm. relaxed. Yeah, so the brain has this ability, especially when we're relaxed and we're in high, t- high tension moments where things are really important, we are micro-slicing up our experience. On certain occasions when I'm so focused, I can see myself. I'm up looking down at myself. You could third-person yourself. Um, that's Okay, so third-person oneself, they call that dissociation, right? And sometimes when people are meditating and there's certain uh, drugs like ketamine, now, nowadays you hear a lot about ketamine therapy. I've never used that back. Yeah. Do you know what ketamine is very similar to? People don't talk about this because nowadays ketamine is legal mm-hmm. for the treatment of depression. It's very widespread. It does have potential for abuse. It really does. I should mention that. But ketamine is essentially PCP, angel dust. Yes, I know. Sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. They, they think PCP. It's, it's all about the doses. Right. Right. So at low doses of ketamine, people get into these dreamlike dissociative states. Those are the ones used to treat depression. People start to third person themselves and they can see themselves as a a being that's suffering and they can get away from that suffering. That's very hard for a depressed person to do. Normally, they just see their suffering. And I'm being eager to, I know there's something about me. I just don't figure it out. There's something about me that makes me different. Have you always felt that way? Yes, as a little boy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, you were different than everyone around you. Yeah. You grew up in a pretty crazy environment too. You felt different. Hmm. Like you looked at the world different or you felt different inside? Well, I knew nobody was going to hurt me. I knew something good was going to happen in my life. You knew certain good was, was going to happen. I knew I was going to be important. Mm -hmm. People would know who I was and just knew what I did. I just knew that when I was a young kid. It's it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the, central things of all of psychology and neuroscience is that the sense of like when we're a kid, we learn we have an I, like a me for you, a you. Right. And, um, you know, we forget things as we get older, that's normal. Uh, but rarely, if ever does somebody wake up and forget who they are, that identity gets kind of, you know, baked in. And, um, I do think that some kids feel as if they are different, that they feel, like something has been endowed in them that leads them to go out and, and forage in the world. We don't know exactly what that is. I think of myself every second of my life, every tenth of a second of my life. It's a very self-identified. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also your name early on became like a thing. It was like a brand and a thing. Like it's a lot of discussion around, about you, around you. You know, how, let's see. I know you got going really early, but at what point did you did you start to think of yourself as uh, like, I'm curious about how you saw your identity. Like, were you a fighter? Were you a kid from Brownsville? That's where you're from. Right. Um, like, like, did you identify as one thing or it was just me? No, I, I identified with all that too. Mm-hmm. But, um, as I identified with all that, um, the finished project was just me. You know what I mean? I'm God. I'm this. I'm the best ever. No one's going to ever be as good as me. I'm ferocious. I'm the meanest fighter ever. It's everything over and over. But when you were in the company of people you loved and trusted, you knew your, that you could be compassionate too and kind too? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm talking about, um, that's how my mind was trained when I was a young fighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask you about hypnosis. You know, I have a colleague at Stanford my colleague, David Spiegel, we work together a lot and he, he does clinical hypnosis, not stage hypnosis, making people squawk like chickens and stuff, but hypnosis, you know, it gets a bad rap because the name people think, Oh, it's someone trying to control you. But hypnosis is really just a state of you controlling you. Exactly. Self hypnosis is deep relaxation plus suggestion. And what the goal of hypnosis is, you know, we hear about meditation designed to 
clear the mind, calm you. You hear about yoga, okay, et cetera. But hypnosis is like a meditation designed to change your brain in a specific way, what we call neuroplasticity. You know, your brain is amazing because unlike the rest of your body, which can change somewhat, muscles and tendons and stuff, your brain can change itself. That's why. That. We used um, hypnosis when I was 14 mm. just for to accomplish our goals. It worked. It doesn't, everybody doesn't um, grasp to it. it just, that's just the truth. Everybody doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate someone that got it. And was it Cuss that taught you? Yeah, he was a hypnotist. He was a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So this guy, Spiegel, I work with, his father was the one who brought hypnosis to the field of psychiatry as a mm-hmm. real thing, as a medical practice. They use it to help people quit smoking nicotine. They use it to help people with chronic pain, with people who are uh, late, like dying of cancer. And the data are, we're talking real clinical studies, right, done in laboratories, university setting, et cetera, are very impressive. Like hypnosis is no joke. It's just that people hear hypnosis and they think, oh, you know, it's like this silly thing. But hypnosis is self-directed rewiring of your own brain. And um, yeah, so would he do that with you regularly and then you eventually cuss and then you learn how to do it on your own i'm doing it first thing in the morning last thing at night oh really yeah yeah and he would talk to you yeah and then sometimes i feel like doing it another time let's do it again and before fights too yeah right before fight do you uh i was going to ask you to share but do you remember any of the things that he talked to you about absolutely yeah, yeah you still remember them yeah isn't that amazing how the things including the music that we hear when we're like 14 15 just gets Baked the us. Never forget them. They're never, playing that, constantly playing the head. Yeah. Did Did that help with your um? Like, does it help with anger management? Like, what? like the, the hypnosis, like you know, especially. With I guess you know, um, if that's what you need, I'm um, using it for. I yeah. don't think I was using it for that. No, I used it to enhance my anger. Oh. Wow. I mean, currently now whatever you're going through, do they put like blocks in your head like to, to stop like if, if somebody annoys you? Listen, one. If, that's, um, if that's your guy's objective, I'm sure, maybe you can. My objective was totally fighting, dismantling people. Mm. And that's just how I lived my life. Well, you 14 to my 30s. Maybe you raised it to be a warrior. Yeah, a champion. Yeah, I'm 47 years old, so I grew up watching a lot of your Thank you. fights. Thank yeah. You. Yeah, we. It was the real. You know, as I get older, I said, "Wow, but that was so important to me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It was so important." Well, what's interesting is when we're young, especially when we're about twelve to twenty-five, we are trying to form an identity. You know, it's rare for an adult to say, "Like, who am I in this world?" I mean, people can change careers, people can go on new journeys of exploration, but but those years are so critical of forming a self-concept. I think that happened in different um, stages of our life because the guy who's 10 is not the same guy at 20. guy at 20 is not the same guy at 30. So we never really actually know who we are until we're close to death. You know? That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm interested in this close to death thing. You know, I've had a couple people really close to me die and I've had conversations with them as they were getting close. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. They talk about the little things becoming so important, you know, like the sunshine's coming in the window this morning and it's like filling their entire day. It's as if their perception of time, they understand and know, because I would think, okay, you're getting close to death, depending on how you one has lived their life. You might think, Oh, like whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm soon going to die, but it's the opposite seems to happen. People seem to start to notice the beauty in all sorts of things. Well, my experience with DMT and when I am, well, DMT to myself, what I believe it is, it gives you the perception of death. Yeah, I haven't done DMT. Yeah. Um, I participated in a clinical trial of MDMA. Yeah. Um, wow. uh, we could talk about psilocybin. Um, well, again, this was That's a clinical light trial. Stuff. Yeah. That's light stuff. Well, let's... let's <laughs> so MDMA stands for methyl dioxy yeah. methamphetamine. So to be clear, MDMA, ecstasy... It has methamphetamine in it, but it has another piece in it that creates a huge increase in serotonin, which is a different chemical. So it's dopamine and serotonin that really go up big and it's an empathogen. So you feel very empathic and there people do it recreationally, which frankly I don't recommend. And they get really into music and that's one way to do it. Again, I don't recommend that. First of all, it's still illegal. 
right? It's not like cannabis. It has not been approved for medical okay. use yet, but it has been explored in medical mm-hmm. studies for the treatment of trauma and PTSD in particular. And when those uh, experiments are done, they put people in the eye mask, they listen to music, they have a therapist there, and they're really thinking about what's going on inside and their relationship to themselves. Oftentimes, childhood trauma, you know, military veterans are getting a lot, a lot of benefit of, now. Yeah, a lot of soldiers from, go through that. Yeah, there's a mm-hmm. wonderful... Um, organization called Veterans Solutions, which is not for pro- not-for-profit organization, which is bringing psychedelics like MDMA to veterans who, you know, they've seen Ridiculous. You know, God knows what, you yeah. know, and they're traumatized by it. And, uh, you know, you talk about trauma. I mean, not everything bad is trauma, but trauma is the stuff that changes your brain so that it works less well in the future. It's outrageous. Deaths of despair are going through the roof. That's what they call them. Deaths of despair, especially in certain populations. Smart young kids. Yeah. Yeah. 18 years old, 19. Now, what did they know in life that really make them want to do that? Yeah, their time perception is such that how they feel in the moment, they make it it seem like it's never going to change. So there's some promising stuff coming out about MDMA done clinically. I think by next year, it will probably be legal. For the treatment of PTSD. Why do you think we have more um, mental health problems now than ever? Oh, uh, that's a big question. Um, Some people say um, kids use that as an excuse. Yeah, I think, well, there are a bunch of things here. Yeah. And, and I don't have all the answers. But if you step back from it, you know, there's this whole generation of kids that was medicated for things like ADHD and depression very early. Thank you. And now, to be fair, I want to be really clear. Some people, not all. Some people, meaning these kids, have had their lives saved by antidepressants and ADHD medication like Ritalin and Adderall. Mm-hmm. But some kids did not need those drugs and were overprescribed those drugs. So that, I'm that guy. Yeah. So so that's that whole category. Is that the most misdiagnosed situation? They tried to tell him my son had that. He, yeah, and it's and it's hard. He didn't you know, have it. I did two episodes on this in my podcast, and here I just want to state my philosophy on this. If possible, behaviors should always go first. Okay. Exercise, sunlight, social connection, quality sleep, meditation, stress control, me- you know, these kinds of things. But there is a place for medication when people are struggling, right? I mean, if somebody has epilepsy, you know, and they're having seizures and they're a danger to the, their own safety, you would hope to put them on an epileptic, on a drug to treat their epilepsy or ketogenic diet is used to treat epilepsy. So I always think of behaviors first and medications often will allow people to get back to the healthy behaviors. Mm. So nowadays you get a kid who's agitated or who can't focus. And I hear from these parents all the time. Should I put my kid on Ritalin, Adderall, Vyvanse? There's a bunch of different categories of drugs. Now keep in mind, all of those drugs uh, except Ritalin are, they are amphetamine, they're speed, but they have the property of calming those kids down because it teaches their brain how to focus. What's interesting is a kid with ADHD who can't focus, if you give them something they love, like video games, yeah. they are like a laser. So it's hard for parents because they don't know, does my kid actually have real ADHD? Mm-hmm. So I'm of the believer that they that parents should really talk to a couple of different really good psychiatrists first. Say, don't don't do the reflexive first thing. One, the first these are serious medications. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot of exploration about whether or not these kids become drug addicts later. Here's the deal. If kids actually have ADHD and you don't treat it, much higher probability that they're going to end up incarcerated and with drug issues. If they do have HD, if they have HD, excuse me, if they have ADHD and you treat it appropriately with behavioral stuff, maybe medication, maybe not, it's not for everybody. And then they say? tend to not be drug users later. So I'm listening. Um, when it comes to drug, the drug game, and we're losing bad. Oh, well, the big, you know, the rehab's big, not working. No, the big issue here is, okay, so why the big, your question, why all the mental health issues? Yes. I think people, so the big five in life for, for mental health, it's clear. You need regular quality sleep. We know this. Every time somebody commits suicide, you look back at their sleep patterns in the, Days and weeks before, totally disrupted. So regular sleep is key. Sunlight, you need sunlight in the morning. It stimulates dopamine release in the brain and other neurochemicals that make you feel good. People are staying up late and looking at their phones and watching TV, staying in and not getting sunlight. You you can't do that and expect to be healthy. The other one is exercise, movement, social connection, good nutrition. And that's just the baseline. 
And I think a lot of kids have been raised in an environment where they're just not doing that. You know, they're not getting sunlight in their eyes. They're and not communicating. And they're not the, the social connection piece. They're just not getting this thing of face to face communication that we grew up with. Now, I always love being around New Yorkers because, by the way, I'm a huge like fan of New York. Ever since we're I was in your faith, I know we're this all the time, and you're seeing people of lots we're of different races and ethnicities. I mean. The, the, the guy is in the street. Two people, you see them talking, having a conversation, you think they're fighting, right? Exactly. That proxy, we, we are a social creature. We're a social creature. And electronic communications have done amazing things, right? I do a podcast. You do, we're on a podcast now. You can communicate with a lot of people. But face-to-face communication mm. has known benefits for the brain. In fact, you have a brain area has a crazy name, fusiform face area. This is a brain area that specifically is activated when you see human faces and seeing faces in the morning is key. And people always say, well, can't I see it on an iPad? Listen, that if that's all you can do fine, but there's a reason they put people into solitary confinement. And there's a reason why that makes people Mm. insane. insane. It drives the mind nuts. We are, there's a molecule. I'm not going to throw out a bunch of molecules, but there's an important set of discoveries made in the last few years. There's a, a, a protein that your body makes called tachykinin, and it comes out when we're isolated. And guess what it does? It makes people aggressive. It makes animal aggressive. It makes mice, flies, and humans aggressive when you isolate them. Then there's some people that just um, they thrive in, a, in isolation. Well, some people are introverted. But, you know, and, and I think we talk about aggression. We, you know, there's aggression towards others, but I think we talk about suicide and deaths of despair. That's aggression to self. Yeah. That's also a, you know, F the world. There's an, you know, some forms of suicide are all about self-hatred. Other forms of suicide are about hatred towards everybody. And so, you know, suicide isn't one thing, just like depression isn't one thing, just like a fever isn't one thing. Mm-hmm. So these kids. A guy could be have self-hate and still be the biggest Entertainment in the world, or the biggest businessman in the world. Oh, I mean, you look at the history. I was re-listening to the uh, story of Steve Jobs. I mean, you know, I mean, this guy had some anger in him. He'd do scream therapy. He was into LSD. He was in, you know, and but when it was time for him to work, he could channel all that into his thing. And then everyone wondered why he was such a jerk in the rest of his life. I mean, you, <laughs> he didn't you, know how to handle life. You, he wasn't. Yeah, he would drive 110 miles per hour up 28, which is the freeway between, you know, Palo Alto and Apple. He was known for being erratic, but he also had his ring, like his 12-round ring. By the way, I have to ask you this boxing question. Um, I heard that when they moved from 15-round pro fights to 12-round pro fights, a lot fewer guys st- st- uh, started dying. Is true. that true? Yeah. Did you ever fight 15 Ooh, rounds? Well, I was... Um... It was supposed to go 15 minutes. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing about yeah, having paid, I'll tell you one thing about having paid for a lot of your fights when we were kids. I mean, I was a little kid, but I remember my friend's dad would uh, would pay for the fight. So we'd go over there. And it'd often be over so fast. It was like, we got our money's worth because it was dramatic. But, you know. Um, Anyone tells me, don't yeah. take a piss. Don't go take a piss. <laughs> exactly. Do you watch your fights? Do you look back? Um, periodically I want my kids to look at it, mm-hmm. but they stopped looking at it. They don't want to see that shit no more. <laughs> oh, they will later. Your kids were in here a couple of them were in here earlier and, uh, they were asking questions about sleep and dreaming. Mm. You have very inquisitive, very smart children. Your son was telling me about sleep paralysis in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. Uh, your daughter was asking about lucid dreaming. These are very <laughs> you know, inquisitive so children. Their mother is very spiritual with the outside world, mm-hmm. you know? I, don't, I like to call her a witch, but you know she's very um, she's very um, conscious <laughs> of us. Like, like matter of fact, what do you think you're existing? Why are you here? Talking about you, what you're talking about? Who, well, who are you? Why are you doing? She this? asked the big questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah who do, who are you, and how do you define yourself? Really, did like, she do that from the moment you met her? Yes. Yeah. First date, she's asking you why you well, here. No, she, no, I was asking her that, but um, uh-huh. she's in that realm uh-huh. where she really wants to know her existence. Yeah, What's amazing. my existence? Amazing. Um, what, it's funny they talked about sleep paralysis. Is that like uh, like your father like, doesn't sleep? Yeah, nah, but you talked sleep. about out of body experience. Do people get confused with sleep paralysis as yeah, so, body experience? So when you go to sleep at night. The first thing that happens is you fall into that shallow phase of sleep where sometimes you jerk yourself awake. And that happened before. Yeah. So then you go into deep sleep. That's when growth hormone is released, yeah. your body repairs, and your dreams in deep sleep, it's called slow wave sleep, tend to be kind of boring, kind of uninteresting. 
I never had any um, visions that were boring me. Okay, then what's probably happening with you is some people go immediately into rapid eye movement sleep. That's the one where underneath your eyelids, your eyes are jutting back. Oh, no one ever told me that. Okay, so when you're in rapid eye movement sleep, your brain is very active. Your dreams are very intense, emotionally laden. But in order to keep your body from acting out those dreams, you're completely per- paralyzed. You have sleep atonia. Now, sometimes people will wake up in the morning and they're still paralyzed and they're wide awake. Okay, well, that's good. And they'll jolt. It's happened to me once. You know what can sometimes people who smoke cannabis have that more often, but you're saying that hasn't happened to you. Yeah, so that first stage of sleep where you sometimes jolt yourself out, that first stage of sleep is very similar to the state of mind you're in when you're in hypnosis. Very similar. Oh. Yeah. And um, your son just asked an excellent question, which is, uh, why do sometimes we get kind of scary things in our dreams? Um, And rapid eye movement sleep is very emotional. Not always scary, but emotional, but you're paralyzed. And the brain somehow seems to have an awareness of that. And first of all, the reason that happens is almost like a trauma therapy. You're going through this emotional stuff from your life. Things are disorganized and weird. You you know, you can be in a podcast and you're flying, then you're in Florida, then you're in California. But so it's disorganized, but at those moments your body can't release adrenaline. That's very different than when you experience something emotional in real life, where adrenaline kicks up. Adrenaline's what allows you to go into the tunnel for a you know a fight or an argument or positive things too. Adrenaline is an amazing molecule. We release it from our adrenals above our kidneys, also in the brain, a similar molecule changes everything in sleep. Rapid eye movement sleep, you have all the emotional stuff, but no adrenaline. And if you look at most forms of trauma therapy that don't involve, you know, a drug, it involves getting people to try and talk about their trauma while staying relaxed. Mm. But one of the key things to getting over trauma, and a lot of people don't realize this, is people have to get back into the experience. They can't keep pushing it away, pushing it away, because then it shows up as back pain, panic attacks, you know, a lot of people think that PTSD is, you know, you hear a car backfire and then you're hiding under a car. Yeah, that's kind of true. Sometimes people just dissociate. They, can't, they don't know why they can't enjoy life anymore. You know, trauma shows up in a lot of different ways. So trauma therapy involves people getting into the experience of the trauma with somebody there to guide them. Um, there is a role for psychedelics in this, in the modern medicine world, where they're starting to explore how psychedelics can facilitate this. Um, but even without psychedelics, people need to get into the hard experience and learn to calm themselves while being able to replay it, which is exactly what's happening in sleep. So sleep is so key to mental health. When you ask what's a big part of the mental health crisis, I don't think it's all about what kids are seeing in their phones. A lot of it is just that they're on their phones and iPads in the middle of the night when they should be sleeping. Sleep is when your brain and body repairs its physical self and its emotional self. And one of the best ways, by the way, to get really good sleep is to make sure that you see the sunlight in the morning, that you go outside and get some sunlight in your eyes, because that tells your brain what time of day it is, and it sets a timer so you can fall asleep later that night. Is it bad that I, I, I take, like, you know, sleep edibles to go to sleep? Okay, so there's conflicting... Yeah, so <laughs> there are... So things like melatonin, cannabis, mm. they help certain people fall asleep, CBD... But the quality of sleep that you get isn't always the best. But it feels like it's massaging my whole body, my legs. So, so here's the question. It was nice. Here's the question. If you can go through your day with maybe taking a short nap, some people need that. Like I need that yeah. in the late afternoon, like a baby. I take a short nap every day. <laughs> but if you are feeling awake during the day, you're probably sleeping well at night. Mm. You know, when people talk about I'm an insomniac, I have insomnia. Insomnia is defined as daytime sleepiness. So a lot of people, you know, would do well to go to bed earlier, wake up earlier. Some people go to bed later, wake up later. There's a lot of variation there. But if you feel alert enough to get through your day, maybe using a little bit of caffeine here and there, you're probably sleeping enough. So for you, sounds like it works. Now, the cannabis thing is we know they're medicinal. It's not good to use. do it every day. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say that. Okay. It sounds like it's working for you. Mike, is it good for me to do it every day? Every moment of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly you formed a relationship with cannabis that works for you. <laughs> but, you know, I will say this just in fairness to the data. There are some people, in particular people who have a genetic predisposition to bipolar disorder. Yeah. Sometimes now just called bipolar depression because people don't like disorder. It makes it sound bad. Okay. 
smoking high THC cannabis yeah. for those people. I got the highest in the world. Predisp- predisposes them to some psychosis later. But some people can do it. Some people can't. It's not a black and white Well, you, clearly you don't have bipolar disorder. You're not a bipolar. Well, I, was, yeah. I was diagnosed as bipolar. Really? Tripolar. Try anything. That's you, another one. You, I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I would not have um, put you in that. Oh, you didn't know me, man. I was, uh, well, I saw some of the clips, but uh, I don't know. I want to talk about that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, having a temper doesn't necessarily mean you're No, it wasn't about my temper. <laughs> okay. Doing, play, doing shit at places people normally don't do shit like Got that. It. Got it. Well, you had a, you've had a very unusual life. Yeah. You know, a good friend of mine, um, who's a, also a... Uh, a well-known musician, my friend Tim Armstrong, he, you know, he said it perfectly. Your life has been, you know, Shakespearean in scope. I mean, it's like what you've gone through and where you've been. And uh, I mean, I think to the rest of the world, it's it's like, whoa, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can talk about aggression for a minute. There's a brain area called the ventromedial hypothalamus. Yeah. And it's been known for about 50 years. Actually, a guy won a Nobel Prize for this work. It's got two kinds of neurons in there, nerve cells. One kind, you stimulate them, and the animal or the person has been seen in people too, goes into a rage. In fact, an animal next to a glove will attack the glove. You give it another rat, it'll attack the, or mouse, it'll attack that mouse. If nothing's in there, it doesn't do much. It doesn't turn on itself. That's kind of interesting. And then this structure, the ventromedial hypothalamus, is very interesting because the other cells in that structure control mating. So in the brain, there's this area called the hypothalamus. It's tiny, tiny. It's like the size of a couple of marbles, the bottom of our brain. And the neurons there are so specific. Stimulate one set of neurons, mating. Stimulate another set of neurons, aggression. Stimulate another set of neurons, sleep. I mean, it's incredible. These are like switches. But, you know, growing up, we learn... You know, you see kids get angry. You know, I remember once doing the throwing dirt clods at my friend with dirt clod war. And then all of a sudden he just, mm. you know, and just, and it was like the game had changed for him. And we're like, he would just go into a rage, you know, but uh, typically that, but you were also trained to do that professionally. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a complicated thing for a brain, you know, from a young age, right? Yeah. I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you. So there's this thing in neuroscience called conditioned place preference or conditioned place avoidance. What it means is when we go to a particular place, a whole set of emotions come back around that. So like if you get near a boxing ring, do you feel different even if it's not your night to fight? No, oh, I'm so sick. Oh, I want to be near a ring. Interesting. Yeah, I feel that too. Like I don't go to clubs unless I'm a ring. I DJ yeah. like festivals, like, and I, I don't want to. You have to be doing a gig or something. Yeah, like, no. Right. I'm not going to go there. I get in the highs when I go to the gym. I'm around boxing gym. Yeah. <laughs> what about when you go back to New York City? How do you feel in New York City? Well, I'm from New York, so I feel um, I feel good. I don't have many friends there anymore. Mm-hmm. They got old, they died, and they got away. But um, I'm so always happy to be there. If you think back to, like, the Catskills... Do you have good memories? Oh, yeah, the greatest. They're my favorite memories. I've seen the documentaries of you sitting around the dinner table, Cuss's house. Yeah, that's my favorite memories. Yeah, you looked very at home there. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the the brain's amazing, right? What we're talking about here is, like, we can go into, like, we get the emotional response associated with memories. Yeah, because I know my mentor sees me. I know he's watching me. So you have a higher power relationship. Yeah, Yeah, you believe in that. Yeah. You guys are talking about brain games. Is deja vu real? I mean, sometimes I'm like driving yeah, down and I see like some that I saw already, no, like the Matrix type. Is that real? Oh, you see, does it, do you go through well, that? No, I, um, I've thought about something, and the next day, like a day or two, wow, I just thought about this not too long ago. I thought of this moment right here. This is what's going on right now. Already, I foresee it. I was there already. Oh man. Yeah. But is that real? Is, it, is the brain yeah. playing games with you? Yeah. If I see a cat and then I see the same scene, the same cat, yeah. and the same scene, I'm like, oh. That's what I wanted like, too. Why did the brain do that? Yeah. Why? I just want to know why. What happened to make the brain do that? Okay. So uh, there's a guy. He also has a Nobel Prize for different work. Uh, his name is Susumo Tonagawa. He's a professor at MIT. And oh. he has studied deja vu in the brain. There are a couple other people who have looked at this too, but mainly him. 
And, you know, your memory system, it sets things up as symbols. We, okay, your brain does mainly three things. One, it does a bunch of things to keep your heart beating and your breathing and your bladder working and all that and keep you alive. Okay. All the basic functions. It also is a prediction machine. It, you know, you're in here and you kind of know what this is about. And so certain things would be typical, certain things would be unusual for here. So it's, it looks at the context and kind of picks up. It's like a bookshelf where the books change. It's like in one context, you got a bunch of books about fighting. Maybe, you know, you come into a podcast too, it's a bunch of books about other things. You have one discussion. So it's, it's kind of like your library of available books in your brain changes depending on where you are. And then you have a system that like thinks in symbols. Like we don't tend to look at the fine details of things unless we decide to. So you'll see like an adversary you're ready to fight or a guy that used to fight like Evander. And then now maybe you guys are friendly now. Okay. All right. So, you know, so all my, um, if I'm not fighting them with friends. Right. So totally different context, totally different rules, right? Proof that your forebrain is still working well, right? Because what happens when people have damage to the forebrain is they lose the context dependent behavior. They start acting strange for a given context. So you have these symbols. And then when you go to sleep at night, you know, some stuff gets kept, some stuff gets discarded from the day before. Deja vu, we know from this work, from this guy at MIT, is when a similar pattern of activity just suddenly emerges in the brain. And because you're not, you know, making sense of the world in a lot of detail, you're grabbing the gestalt, the big stuff, the big picture. Well, that big picture just kind of pops back and you see something that's so similar. You know, the other day I was just walking along and I felt the same way I did a previous time, but I couldn't remember. So kind of like that. And that's because feelings are not that, they're not that many different ways to encode feelings. Cause you probably had trillions of feelings in your lifetime, Absolutely. but they probably fall into maybe six or seven categories. Right. Yeah. Well, like, listen, we're, um, we're, we're imprisoned to our memories. Yeah. You know what I mean? We, they never leave us. Is it bad to keep it to myself? I mean, sometimes I have not, and the world is around me, I just don't tell them. I'll be like, okay. I think I'm crazy or something. I keep it to myself. You're definitely not crazy. This is, deja vu is normal brain function. You know what I notice happens yeah. sometimes with me and with people in general? You think about somebody, next thing you know, he pops up or he calls you. Okay, right? well, that, that is always a little eerie when that happens. Yeah. The other day I was thinking, or you have a dream about somebody yeah. and they reach back. I haven't seen them for years. Yeah. Well, that gets to these issues of whether or not you, you know, you believe in something greater than what we can understand and see, right? Um, and I believe there's something that we used to do all the time, but we forgot how to do it again, um, communicate without using phones and stuff. Well, there's a theory, and now I'm going to sound like a crazy person to the science community, but there is a theory uh, that is sort of at the boundary of science, okay? Because science can't explain everything. It's just one lens to look on the world, right? Can science explain spirituality? Probably not well. You know, I mean, I'm a neuroscientist, but I can still have a, a notion of higher power, right? And there's, I don't need science to try and explain that. It can, that both can be true. Um, and I'm not the first scientist to feel that way. I mean, Einstein himself felt that way, right? So from what he tells us. So there is a theory that in areas like Lapland and these places where people live very far apart, that people could anticipate when people were going to come visit, they'd start preparing food and things like that. And then they'd show up. And I've heard these stories and thought, at first I thought, okay, this is crazy, right? This is just crazy. But if you go back and you start looking at some of the, the documentation of this, the documentation was done by people who are very objective. So, you know, maybe we have some sort of um, intrinsic rhythm in our brain of the frequency that things tend to happen. And we start to anticipate them. That would be logical. But who knows, you know, we love to think of the brain as working exactly the way we understand in the textbooks right now. But look, every week, it seems there's a new discovery about how I'm a strong believer that our brain is not our friend. It's not our friend. Yeah. Well, you're not alone in that. You know, the, the Carl Jung and some of the great psychologists had this idea that we have all things inside of us, meaning inside of our brain, we have the capacity to be anything, the worst human being mm-hmm. or the best human being. This is what Jung thought. And that some people, perhaps yourself, experience more of those different ways of being than other people. And that those people who experience more ways of being than other people are in a unique position to report about their experience of having been many things. You know, I mean, people gravitate to you because of your boxing record, of course. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, in in recent years, as far as I've seen, you've also been out there talking about how you tried to change your consciousness and, and 
look back on the things that you didn't like about your life and change them. And, you know, I think people tend to gravitate towards people that have, have been um, pioneers and adventurers and voyagers and gone out there because m- many people, not all, but many people are afraid to get outside their immediate experience or they're just curious about others' experiences. Yeah, I know a lot of people think differently. Like if you go to Dubai or you go to Egypt, like people back in the days, they used their mind to create like the pyramid, like just because you don't do it physically. If you thought about this, you really created this amazing thing in front of you by using your mind. Yeah. Well, if, you know, I do think the one issue with the phones nowadays is you see, you can see uh, the internet, you can see how things have been done, but it's very hard on the internet to see something that hasn't been done yet. And imagination and creating new things is all about imagining things that have not been done. This is why, um, you know, I, I sat down and did a podcast with Rick Rubin, or, you know, our, our mutual He's friend. He's and, you know, and Rick, you know, you know, and I know Rick well, and we talk often about, you know, his whole thing is that creativity comes from nature, but from everything around us is offering us tools, but we have to be in a position to capture those tools. I just don't think anybody could comprehend life. You know what I mean? Some people just party all their life and some people try to figure out what life's all about. And at the end of the day, they both know nothing about life. Mm. You know, I think it's, it's, just, true. it's just beyond our comprehension. We make it the way we want it to be in our mind. I just think it's far beyond us to even understand what this is all about. Yeah, we're we're a storytelling species. I mean, it's funny you say that because how do you see what's inside your head? Like, and how and how do you get these answers from these scientists? How do they know? Like, I don't get this. Like, how do you really know from something? Yeah. Different? So, what the first operation is? What five thousand years ago? They found uh, uh, somebody one of those oh, really? skeletons. You know, one of those. Um, where the, the Sumerians or something yeah. with, tech, with operation or something. Yeah. Yeah. There's a wonderful book. If people are interested in the history of medicine, it's called the Prince of Medicine. This guy Galen was one of the first people to operate on humans. Oh, you'll be interested in this. So at that time, people weren't allowed to operate on people. Mm-hmm. So they were allowed to operate on animals and they could leave their home country. There were a few countries where they were allowed to do it. So Galen was very interesting so who did he learn medicine? How did he learn medicine and about the organs of the body? Gladiators. Yeah, I knew that. So he would find gladiators that were cut open but weren't dead, and he'd spend extra, he'd spend a little extra time in there while he was doing surgery going, oh, well, here's this thing, and I wonder what happens with it. That's oh, yeah. The right way. So gladiators were the first specimens for, for modern med- what eventually became modern medicine, right? And back then, surgeries were public. People would do surgeries in front of an audience. You know, we've always been fascinated by who we are. And I will say this, you know, scientists are trying to understand things Mm. and hopefully those, those understandings convert to good treatments for health, mental health and physical health. But science and medicine is not about answering all the big questions, right? Mm. It's not about trying to like bridge the divide to like, people talk about consciousness, but like those are high level things. You know, I think that someday there will be a, a, a link between experience, science, medicine, and spirituality, and the, you know, the collective. I mean, what we're talking about here is also not talking about ourselves in isolation, but relational stuff. Um, someday, hopefully, we'll understand that. But I don't know, you made the prediction that we might all be gone before. Yeah. <laughs> and then if that's true, which species is going to inherit the earth? I always wonder about this. Say that again. If we're all gone, which species will inherit the, the world? Will, be like the, will it be the octopus or something like that? They're pretty smart. Yeah. What do you think will happen? I think... Um... What is the strongest species that's living on the planet? Well, um, pretty much morph into us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the fungi, the, the mushrooms. You always talk about how we're the fungus on Earth. Yeah, we are. We're the fungus on the Earth. Okay, virus. Well, well, then you, you know, know, I'm sure some animals or some guys, some species eat us. They get high. Okay, well, this is this is gonna this is gonna blow your mind. Perhaps I don't know. You've been through a lot. I don't know what can blow your mind, but you know these days you hear a lot about the gut microbiome. Yeah, you know it's important to get enough fiber, probiotics because your leaky gut. gut yeah, because your gut communicates with your brain. It actually helps make neurotransmitters for your brain. Mm-hmm. And we know, uh, and this is you know, you take the gut microbiome from an obese person, you put it uh, from a lean person into an obese person, they get lean. So there's a lot of stuff from the gut that communicates with the brain, mood. There's a lot of ideas, maybe even in certain forms of autism, the gut is disrupted. A lot of ideas about this. The gut microbiome are trillions of little microbacteria that most of them are good for us. I have a colleague at Stanford. His name is Justin Sonnenberg. He works on the gut microbiome. And he said, what if these little microbiota 
that what if they're really, really smart? We don't think of them as smart, but what if we are just bags for them? Because the way they work is they want to get into as many different people as possible. That's how they keep proliferating. So what if shaking hands, which we shared microbiomes when we shook hands, when you see somebody, when you go home, you're sharing microbiomes because you have it on your skin too. You have microbiomes all over the skin. It's in your nasal passages everywhere. I mean, we're just in everyday connection here, shaking hands, et cetera. But when people are intimate, they share their microbiome, mm-hmm. right? By, by mouth or by genitals or whatever it is. So what if the microbiota, this was his idea, just as a thought experiment, what if the microbiota are actually the ones in charge and we're running around living our lives, thinking our lives are so important and it's actually, we're just vehicles yeah. for the, for the guy like I don't think that we're navigating our life. <laughs> well, it's listen, crazy. there are very, very smart people at the high levels because of the listen, game who are starting to toss out these ideas. Because when you think about syphilis was a skin, a skin rash at one time, exactly. and, but it had a brain and said, hey, I want to survive. So it went into our, wow. our glands and our balls and everything. Yeah. And so, and you know, viruses don't have a mind the same way we do. So they've exploited sexually transmitted viruses, have exploited the fact that one member of an organism will physically interact with another member of the organism and infect it. That's it. They've, they've exploited that in their viral type mind. We don't think of it as they probably don't have thoughts the way that we have thoughts. We don't know. But the microbiomes, I mean, just imagine that we're going around thinking our life is so important. I'm going to see this person, kiss them on the cheek, meet them, shake hands. And the little microbiota are like, we love this. I mean, all, you know? all, all mine's dumb because every time I eat like Wagyu, like a Wagyu steak, medium rare, it takes like weeks to digest. But my, my gut is fucked up. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Hey, you need to get some, if you're young, you yeah, shit it out. My shit ain't going. I got headaches. I swear. I can't eat that kind of red meat. Like steak. Get some wagyu. Some wagyu. I I don't know. I'm a half Argentinian. I eat red meat. Oh, whatever. Guys, so they eat everything. Yeah, that's all. They eat everything. That's all. Do they eat meat? Plants. You, you're vegetarian. No, no. I eat chicken and fish. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in your fifties now. Yeah, 57. All right, four, 57, 47. 52. 52. So yeah, I probably eat a little less red meat um, than I used to, but. I still love it. I think to keep your gut microbiome healthy, yeah, yeah, you need vegetables and fiber. Some people don't like that. Nowadays, you have the pure carnivore people, Mm -hmm. and they'll probably attack me for saying that. But listen, most people do well eating some fruits and vegetables. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the the arguments about nutrition on the Internet are kind of silly because most people are omnivores. They're eating a mixture of animal proteins, fruits, vegetables and starches. You know, the the arguments are taking place. um, I, I I saw one of your videos and you stated that. Your bones communicate with your brain. I didn't know that. Yeah. So when you ec- yeah. So when you exercise, this is the work of, of a Nobel Prize winner named Eric Kandel. You about that? So this is wild. When you exercise, especially load bearing exercise, so boxing would be included, but but weight training, running, your bones actually secrete a hormone like signal called osteocalcin that travels in the blood, goes out of the bones into the bloodstream, into the brain, and helps stimulate your memory centers of the brain. If you think about it, nature is so smart because how does your brain know if your body's moving? Well, it could see, pay attention to the limbs, but when the bones are load, when they're, you know, they've loads on them, right? When you run and the kind of a little bit of jarring from the running or from lifting, that is sent through the nervous system back to the brain. And it's proof positive that your body is moving and it needs to be rejuvenated. So the two major functions of your brain really are vision and movement. You know, we think we use a lot of brain space for thinking. Most of our brain is dedicated to being able to move. And we're, we are different than other species. Most species move in just a couple dedicated ways. You know, a horse can trot, walk, gallop, you know, all these. But humans can sprint, can do marathons, can do ultra marathons, box 12 or 15 rounds, you know, gymnastics, you know, parkour, skateboarding, you know, play music, guitar, drums. I mean, no other animal has even close to the range of movement that we do. So when... We are moving, our brains get that signal, and the bones are the, one of the major ways that that signal is sent back up to the brain. And this is why people who exercise f- feel better. Their brains get better over time, you know, or they continue to stay young. When people become sedentary, when they stop moving, oh, they start losing memory. And then part of that's blood flow and hormone related. But the way to people always say, how to stay young, you know, what did this person eat? What did he, you know, that 
Movement, movement, movement. Is it a higher ability to live longer if you work out? Because some people, like, you know, people... The muscle, you live with muscle. Muscle keeps you alive. Really? Muscle and you, muscle and the cardiovascular work. Yeah. I imagine that... Do you do the cardio, too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do that by mitt work and things like that? No, yeah, I can do that. But normally, if I walk, I'll start running. Yeah. Still run? Uh, yeah. I just see you running on the pier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 4 a.m. runs. Yeah. And then back to sleep. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. I love to run and I love to lift. I love both. Some people say you can't run. Oh, That's ridiculous. You mean, you know. Yeah. Running run is a big time drug. Yeah. Running is amazing. Well, all animals need movement. It's, an, it's what I call an antidepressant mm-hmm. behavior. And people who know this are like, well, of course, it makes you feel better. But, you know, we're, we all... We are also dealing with a real crisis of sedentary life. You know, we don't move enough these days. We don't walk enough. One reason I love New York City is that, like, you walk a lot. Yeah, you do. You know, you're, you're walking a ton. And people are still on their phones there, but less than you see out. But people in New York just walking, have nowhere to go. They just yeah. come for walk. And talking and yeah. arguing. And, yeah. yeah. I always think of New York City as, like, the tropical reef of humanity. Everywhere you look, there's life. You know, you look down an alleyway. Only the person <laughs> fighting. Yeah. See a rack. <laughs> why, why, why is it that we're so, like, we want to be controlled? Like, you know, they always, I don't want to get too deep, but when, like, you see, like, the Vatican or the church, they, they go against science, but they use science to control the masses. Like, you know. Oh, well, this okay. Well, actually, you know, some. You're talking well, about well, the Pope it, now. Hey, secret. now you're disrespecting the Pope now. I don't know that. I don't know that, homie. Hey, listen, he's a good person. Man. <laughs> you don't know everybody, you know, Mike. <laughs> in my experience, yeah. Why? Why is it we? My experience, and and I'm not being uh, diplomatic here. In my experience, whether or not I meet somebody who's Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, they tend to be pretty open about scientific findings. But there is a science to control the masses. Well, yeah. Okay. So the, just don't do what I tell you to do. I won't put you in jail. That's all. <laughs> Well, kill each, you. each of the, you know, different parts of the world, there are different rule sets, right? Um, you know, I'm, and I'm being honest here. I, I am not aware of any systematic effort to leverage science in order to control people mm. that has any relationship to specific religion, right? I mean, I think that... Um, well, religion suppresses science. They, they go by, you know, you got to be, you got to believe in this God, spiritualness. I believe in spiritualness. I believe in some entity out there, but I know that they abused like psychological science of like, like if you have like hundred people controlling this country and there's like millions of people that's not killing these hundred people, that's control. Well, anytime it make no sense, right? Mike, like, well, anytime you have information, life doesn't make sense. Us living doesn't make sense. I mean, that's crazy. But anytime you have information that uh, about something that is powerful, do you think you make sense? Well, I, I hope I, I hope I made a little sense today. Yeah, do you think you make sense to, to me or to other people? It's just to you and what you discovered since you've been living in life. Do you think that makes sense? Or is it just what you learned that somebody wrote down? Yeah, I, you know, I consider myself a, an explorer, brain yeah. explorer. Um, you know, I like to think that with introspection, we can understand our minds to some extent, to some extent. And I like to think that by observing nature and other people, we can start to understand some of the general principles that let us hopefully thrive. But but I don't claim to have answers about the big picture. Like you're asking about the big picture. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes it's in front I'm afraid of our I don't face. have an answer. No, but it is in front of our faces sometimes. But it's just like I guess they they use like you know, you gotta believe in something to there's rules in the game. Like you know, well, telling people what to believe is is. Always like my, my mom is old school. Like she tr- prays every day. Mm-hmm. She believes, you know, sinning is like this, the worst thing possible where, you know, and this is mind boggling the way we live now with technology. But I think you can have a good relationship to science and still have a sense of higher power. Many people do. And higher power to some people is, is God in one form, higher power in another form yeah. is, um, is situational. Like the higher power of a need for a community to work together, a family to work together. You know, I, I know many scientists who are just pure atheists. I know many scientists who are agnostic. They're not, they're undecided. And I know a fair number of scientists, including some that I work closely with um, back at Stanford, who would call, describe themselves as religious, as having a very close relationship to God. So I've seen it all, all ways. Yeah. Mike, Mike you, you met Ozzy Wynn the other day. 
Oh, I've seen him. Excuse me? Ozzy. Are you wearing with Ozzy? The, 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 mentalist. the mentalist. Oh, oh, oh. He is <laughs> unbelievable. How was that? You met him? I saw him and met him at the Magic Castle. <laughs> what happened, Mike? What happened? I know, right? Right? It's 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 beyond. My dad's 80th birthday is coming up. I want like that that guy to come on uh, to come do his birthday. That it is it's insane. Listen, um, he's a little fucking geeky white play, right? <laughs> no, listen. Is he describing me or is he talking no, about No, he's talking about Ozzy. He's talking about Ozzy. No, I mean, I fall, probably fit into that category. No, but next thing you know, right? I went, I, went, I went on some ghetto shit. He said, tell me who you're thinking about right now and give me his nickname. Really? So I go like this in my mind. It's in my mind. I didn't tell him yet. It's Jack Johnson. He said, give me the initials. He said, is the initial to his name JJ? And he had J and J written, written on his fingers. Right? Yeah. No, 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 no. And that's it. What's the nickname? The nickname is Big Black. <sighs> it's in my mind. I, I've met Ozzy Wind. I met him. I he saw him do a little guy. So smart. Yeah. And people said, you got to see this guy mentalist. I'm like, I'm a neuroscientist, whatever. It is unbelievable. Can I tell you what he did? What tell me? me? He gave me a card, right? And a pen. He left. I wrote, I signed on that card. Okay. Okay. I folded it up because he told me to tore it up. All right. Put it in my pocket. Okay. I kept the pen. Okay. He comes back in, and by the way, I shielded from anything, couldn't see. We do the whole thing. He had brought me up to the table in front of people. We go through the whole thing. He did a bunch of amazing car tricks, a bunch of mentalist stuff, like all of that. And then he's like, get the, get it out of your pocket. So I go into my pocket. It's not there. Oh, snap. He goes, take off your right shoe. Take off my, my right shoe. I take off my right shoe. Oh, wait. And at the bottom of it is the card intact, not torn up. With my signature on it. No way. And listen, I don't smoke weed. I don't drink alcohol. I was not on any substance. And I, to this day, I cannot understand what he did because I am. And remember, there's an audience there listen. at close proximity. So <laughs> you, ha you have everything. He don't have nothing. He said, okay. rip it up, put it in your pocket. You don't have nothing. Then I say, no, he said, and this is and this is in the shoes. That's what his nickname is, Big Black. That was Jack Johnson's. Uh, yeah. Goodness. That's insane, man. <laughs> so I do think there are things beyond our comprehension, clearly. And, you know, whether or not he and other people are a portal to that through some, you know, some people, you know, I, the other day someone said to me, um, they said this about themselves. They said, I think in feels. And I said, what do you mean you think in feels? They're like, you have thoughts. You think this, 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 like Google Maps, go here, this, go there. But they they said they th think in feels that they that their thoughts are an arrangement of feelings in their body. I could see that. And so some people, I think, just Whoa. go through life differently. You know, a uh, mantis shrimp sees for every color, shade of red we see, they see about 40 other shades of red that are there. I mean, a pit viper can sense heat emissions. I mean, there's a lot else going on that we don't see because we don't have the nervous system for it. And so there is this idea that maybe... Some nervous systems are able to detect things. I mean, turtles can navigate by magnetic fields. Mm -hmm. And the studies of magnetoreception in humans. We all have that. It's inconclusive. No, but sometimes we touch it. Yeah. Well, static electricity. Yeah. yeah. No, there's a weak magnetoreception in some people that has been documented. This is published in yeah. Science Magazine. I'm not just kind of throwing it. Not some journal made up, you know. And yeah. uh, So I think that people are tuned up differently. And developmentally, we go through life experiencing different things and our brain is customized to our own experience. I mean, you were raised in a very particular set of circumstances that made your mind and your body optimized for hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you were built to be this warrior, right? And m most people don't are raised that way. Some kids it's music, some kid, you know, the kid that feels music was, or the, the ability to write music was like put in them. I mean, that they feel that the same way you knew, about you now, and that's not me. I have no musical ability. You know Will I Am? You ever met Will I Am? No. So he produces by everybody knows like the colors of the normal orange, red, whatever. But he goes, he does his beats through other spectrums like ultraviolet. Nobody pays attention to those like X-ray. So he uses those kind of like easy. Interesting. Some people have um, synesthesia, which is a blending where they they see they hear a note of music and they yeah. see a color. That's what that's, that's and they literally can just see it as color. But you know that's 
not entirely unusual. This is where I think the yeah. crossover into psychedelics is it's relevant, right? I mean, I think psychedelics we know broaden the connectivity in the brain, the psilocybin in particular, in a way that allows people to create new associations. And again, I don't think people, especially kids, should be messing around with it recreationally. We're talking adults, about the adults, make it clear. clinical <laughs> studies, right? Psilocybin is still illegal. Oregon, it's pseudo-legal. Um, I think in 2025 or 2026, that may change. But right now, as far you know, should I do it? ayahuasca? Is that something that everybody? Yeah, fifty I've never done that. That's very interesting. That's in the DMT. Everybody has a different. Experience. You know, it was, it was a good experience. So we some, Fine, like I had one a, bad one, one good one. Oh, you had a bad one. I, I like just the toe, just go right there. DMT. I, yeah, DMT is what, right to go. What is it's 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 short, right? Fifteen minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like a, a thousand years. How many times have you done it? Around 85. <laughs> 85. Yeah. Wow. Is that combo? Is that the same thing? Is the, no. no, that's different. What about Ibogaine, Iboga? Oh, I want to try that. So Iboga is... From Africa. Yeah, right? so Iboga, you have to be careful. You have a heart condition. It's not legal in this country, but it's being used to treat opioid. Mm -hmm. Iboga is 22 hours long. Yeah. And Iboga, I know someone from the veterans community who did this recently and got great relief from their PTSD for it. I was told they closed their eyes and they would get like a movie quality image of past experiences, but they had control over what they did in those experiences. Open their eyes, hallucination stopped. So Iboga is a, um, it's a bit of a controversial one because people can die on it. You need someone there to monitor your heart, mm -hmm. et cetera. But um, it's also showing interesting, you know, it's not conclusive, but interesting stuff on helping people get over Seriously, I'm telling my friend, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try snake venom, too. Oh, goodness. Oh, God. Really? Snake. Which snake? Which what venom? I know a lot about venom. White cobra, probably. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, yeah, like, those, be careful. Please. You live to tell, too. After all, everything you've been through, for you to die from self-induced snake venom would be would be tragic. No. Yeah. I mean, that's just where I want to go. Okay. What, what's it, what entices you about snake venom? Because I just know it's um it's a good medicine. I think I would yeah? enjoy that. Yeah. Okay. Um, please have a physician there. Exactly. I hope so too. Yeah. Man. Well, we want we they got, they got these beautiful kids and beautiful wife. You know, no, it's going to be earlier, okay. You know, it's going to be okay. You got a lot to live for. Yeah, it's going to be okay. Let's read about it. It's going to be okay. Okay. Well, I like your attitude. I mean, I like your yeah. attitude. Yeah, yeah. I, I know a lot of rappers in Chicago, and they dealt with like gun violence services. Their kids and they're big now, but now they moved. They live in L.A., Miami. How do you help them, I mean, with their PTSD? Like, they, they said they still... They have to one help. They still got to be like, you know, like G Herbo. I mean, you met a lot of these rappers, Lil Durk. Like, they, yeah. they always like... Yeah, yeah we're talking about that. Like, it's the hypervigilance. Without meeting them, how, if you're talking to them right now, how, how would they help? How, how would you help them? Yeah, the hypervigilance. Well, you know, I'm a believer that everybody, not just people with PTSD, need to have two sets of tools for stress. Remember, sleep is the way that you reset your brain and body. Mm -hmm. But... You need tools to calm yourself down in real time. And you need tools that bring your level of, you know, stress down every day. For some people, that's meditation. For some people, that's prayer, yoga, yoga exercise. I mean, listen, you're talking about religion earlier. I will say that there are certain elements of prayer that have really helped yeah. people. Okay. And I'm not here to represent religion. That's not, I'm a scientist, but, but I think that many people get a lot out of prayer. Um, meditation. A lot of people get a lot out of that, but Having some practice of five to 10 minutes long per day where they just center themselves or meditative practice, prayer practice has, we know from the data are, that's very valuable. There's five minutes maybe or so. The other thing is a real time tool. And actually my laboratory has worked extensively on these tools to deal with stress in real time. One of the fastest ways to calm yourself down is to take two deep inhales through your nose with nothing in between and then a long exhale through the mouth. It's called a physiological sigh. I didn't discover it. It was discovered in the 1930s. Dogs do this before they go to sleep. Oh, wow. You'll really? see it's like this. Oh, that's, that's how homeboys smoke so right there. So it's a big inhale through the nose twice. Here, let's do it. To... Well, listen, um, what, that's a with Khalifa, with Khalifa smoking. <laughs> and then a long exhale. So some people would double wham this yeah. between their lips, but that double inhale through the nose, what? long exhale through the mouth. He's the head of the game, kid. Um, um, fucking with Khalifa, yeah, he's the head of the game. Yeah, that's that's the fastest way we know to calm down. Then for PTSD itself, I recommend 
they explore two things. Find somebody who really does quality PTSD therapy. Some people use EMDR, the eye movement. Okay. But there's very interesting work going on right now using um, big, like respiration practices that are a bit more of a hyperventilation type, getting people into those amplified states and then teaching them to be oh, calm. Great, great, great. Um, some people get great benefit from, you know, they can write to the MAPS group, which is legally able to use PTS, uh, MDMA to treat PTSD. I feel bad for them. Like, imagine Mike oh, I constantly do. hearing a gunshot. Camera right here, there's many, tens of millions of views. Tell them how they can get in touch with you. Okay, so... Um, best way to get in touch with me is if you want to learn more about brain science, health science, everything from fitness, mental health, et cetera, all of that is at hubermanlab.com. We have all the episodes of the Huberman lab podcast it comes out every Monday. And sometimes we have a special series. Um, we have a mental health series coming out in September and again, hubermanlab.com. You can find it in all formats. It's all zero cost to access. Oh, thank you. Well, I got that Tyson check it out. I was saying earlier, I don't know if it was while we were oh, recording that, 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 um, that, um, <laughs> that, uh, don't be scared. I'm shaking. Mike is one of the few people on earth, perhaps the one who can wear his old shirt, shirt on his <laughs> and, cool, and it looks cool. So, thank you for the, and they got I've never been on a podcast where I got, uh, I mean, I am of age. I don't indulge in cannabis, but I know people who do. Um, and the Mike Tyson bites, it's in the shape of Evander's ear. Good old Holyfield. <laughs> Whatever happened to that little piece that's gone? I gave it back to him. Did <laughs> <And laughs> spit it out? Well, at first I did, but once they took it in, um, they put in some homework. I, I gave it back to him. <laughs> oh, goodness. But you're friends now. Yeah, proof we that work together. Proof that humans can reconcile. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. And thank you. Appreciate you. Of course, man. Cool thank guy, you. man. Well, likewise. Hey, everybody, this is another episode of Hot Boxing. And that was me, Mike Tyson, giving the interview. And I'm here with Andrew and Ooh, kid. Good one. Uh, 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 uh